Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I'm Kevin Flynn with Rebecca Lavoie and Patrick Hines, and these are their stories. You think you know who did it, but you don't know who did it. Law and order, law and order, law and order. It's no ordinary police procedural, baby. It's the FNOG of police procedures, baby. Law and order, law and order, law and order, law and order. These are their stories, these are their stories. Welcome to These Are Their Stories, the podcast about Network TV's most enduring crime franchise and the real-life cases that inspired their shows. I'm Kevin Flynn. Each podcast, we break down an episode from either Criminal Intent, SVU, or Original Recipe. And today we're looking at Special Victims Unit Season 13, Episode 12, Official Story. Joining me to do that is true crime author, the host of the podcast Crime Writers On, and the most beautiful woman that I'm married to, Rebecca Lavoie. Hello, Rebecca. Hello, Kevin. You're making me blush. No, I think that's just all the whiskey you had tonight. (laughs) And rounding out the panel is our special guest from Broadway Backstory and the Theater People podcast. It's Patrick Hines. Patrick! Hi, guys. This is outrageous. I can't believe I'm talking to you. (laughs) We can't believe we're talking to you. You are just like one of the biggest up-and-coming podcast stars out there. I I mean, listen, all I ever want to do is sit down and listen to episodes of Crime Writers On and and so the, listen, I just the fact that being in your mere presence has just made my oh week. Oh my god! Oh, you're so sweet. <laughs> He's the best. We're still going to talk crap about you after we uh, <laughs> after the show. Just so you should know that. I hope. I mean, if you don't, I'm going to be really offended. I will defend your honor. So you've got the People Theater podcast <laughs> and now Broadway backstory. Theater people. Theater people. What did I say? I said people theater. People theater. <laughs> this is, is that like up with people? It sounds like seventies like interpretive <laughs> exactly. dance situation. Like mum and shots. <laughs> you go out with a clay mask and you start sculpting like frowny we, faces. We all come the... out in a giant bag and just like dance out in a giant, a like, giant bag. bag. That's how we live in New York. That's New York, baby. Because even if you haven't heard the podcast, I suppose you can figure out that it's about Broadway theater and theater life. And boy, it's just too bad nothing really great has happened on Broadway recently. Recently, huh, Patrick? <laughs> yeah, it's been a boring couple years on Broadway. No, it's it's a really exciting time to be doing this. It's um, you know, Broadway is at its best, and it's you know, it's just so great to get to talk to these people. I have a question that I have been dying to ask you. Um, this is your life. You're like yes. immersed in the theater world. You have like theater friends. You're like in it. You have a podcast about it. Two podcasts about it. Do you ever get sick of hearing people talk about Hamilton? Yes or no? <laughs> um, no, I really I don't. I mean, you know, Hamilton is like so layered. There's so much to talk about. I will say that like I got to interview so many members of the cast that then I started to like delve into the creative side. So like, I, you know, for a while I was like obsessed with the set designer who's an incredible artist named David Corns and, and then I was talking to the orchestrator Alex Lackamore who's a genius and Tommy Kale, the director is like an old 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 friend of mine so like you know it's uh, no I don't ever get sick of it I'm so proud 
you know, to have seen Lynn Manuel Miranda like graduate from, you know, I used to know Lynn when he was doing shows in in the basement theater of the Drama Bookshop where they were like originally doing In the Heights in 2003. Name so to drop. see him ascend to this <laughs> <laughs> you know, just I figured I'd slip it in as early as possible, you guys. But, you know, just to like to see him like do what he's doing. I mean, he hosted Saturday Night Live. It's crazy. It's crazy. So, no, I could talk about it forever, I'm sure. Now, is it a curse or a superpower to be able to recognize all those New York Broadway actors making guest appearances on Law & Order? <laughs> <laughs> it is definitely a curse. It is absolutely a curse. Because you can't not... It's like a joke in New York that like you haven't... It, you could have a Tony Award, but you haven't made it until you guest starred on Law & Order. So, you know, it's like, you know, you can't like you can't get through an episode without recognizing like 15 people. So it's funny. And it's always very like, OK, yay, they made TV money this week. That's great. <laughs> you got to hook us up with some of those people to come on our podcast, Pat. Oh, I could do that. That's a note. You give me a list. <laughs> Rebecca, I'll do anything for you. I will crawl on my hands and knees to New Hampshire with like some one of them riding on my back if you ask me to. <laughs> You're the best guest we've ever had. I know, but it, it must be something to see the guy who's like Aaron Burr all of a sudden like moving boxes of oranges and trying to talk to the detectives at the same time. <laughs> he's so put off by, oh, a homicide. Leslie Odom Jr. Yeah. He's intense, that guy. Like, he's he's such a good, intense actor. Yeah. And you also see it, like, on The Good Wife, too. Like, there's one was one episode where there was, like, seven Broadway actors in it. And you're just like, oh, my God. Are you guys, like, rehearsing on, in your downtime? <laughs> like, you, they could do their own show. It's like they all took the same bus over to the uh, casting agent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They take buses because they come from the theater. So, Patrick, of all the franchises, which two cops are your favorite detective team? Favorite Law and Order detective team. Oh, my God. I'm so bad with Law and Order. I know one of them ended up being a lesbian. I liked her. Uh, and uh, <laughs> Maloney's really handsome. <laughs> all right. I will tell you this, though. I used to, um, when I worked at a coffee shop downtown in the West Village, I used to wait on Jill Hennessy. She used to come into the coffee shop all the time. Yeah. So she was really But she nice. was a prosecutor, not a detective, Patrick. <laughs> oh, sorry, guys. Let's make a drinking game. Every time I get it wrong, take a shot. <laughs> oh, we've already been doing that, which is why Rebecca's cheeks are so red. If I knew we would be drinking, I would have come to New Hampshire for this. Now let's look at the first half of this episode, season 13, episode 12, official story. Now remember, we'll be talking about fictional detectives investigating a fictional sexually based offense. And if you find that particularly heinous, you might want to sample another one of our episodes. Controversial CEO of defense contractor battle-tested security, William Rand, is found in Central Park, hogtied, sodomized, but otherwise unharmed. Benson and Amaro suspect a retired Marine who's been seen at protests, and when they find him on the docks with his security team, all of them carrying automatic rifles, and because everyone is white, no one gets a cap in their ass. (laughs) (laughs) Donald O'Keefe admits to assaulting Rand, but he says it's payback for what happened to his daughter, Corey. She says while working for Battle Tested in Iraq, she was drugged and raped by four private contractors. They held her against her will for three days, and the rape kit disappeared. She reported to the nearest base commander. He said they weren't military. Four years we've been trying. The State Department, the Justice Department. Four years, and no charges have ever been filed. DOJ caved like everyone else. No one wants to take these guys on. 
Meanwhile, a sexy new district attorney champions Olivia's case. They get stonewalled by the feds, but they locate an army doctor who treated Corey, who confirms the brutal attack actually happened. So we think there's going to be an investigation into William Rand's kidnapping. We think this is what it's going to be about. Patrick, as a New Yorker, I have to ask you, is this a legitimate alibi for a hippie for at the time of the crime to be at a drum circle at the mayor's house? <laughs> you know, it's funny. It, it took me back watching that because I remember Zuccotti Park. I remember that whole Occupy thing. I would say probably not now. Like, we like our mayor now, but like maybe then, maybe in the time of, of Zuccotti Park and, and the whole like Occupy Wall Street, I guess maybe I would say, I'm going to give it a solid maybe. I got to say, the Occupy Wall Street thing felt very nostalgic to me. It feels like a long <laughs> totally time ago, did. even though it wasn't that long ago. It's true. I remember going down and, and doing some recording there for the radio show I used to work on and interviewing a guy wearing a pig mask as we like. <laughs> oh my God, that was great. <laughs> it, but it felt, it was like, it gave me sort of the warm fuzzies to see that hippie talking about his drum circle and Occupy Wall Street. I gotta say. Yeah. No, for sure. They were they were in it to win it. <laughs> did they win though? <laughs> they, they did not. <laughs> that is questionable. No, I mean, remember like they disbanded everybody. Like they, yeah, it was, it ended up getting really ugly down there. But yeah, it was, it was a very interesting time in New York City. So I want to say we have a Hey, It's That Guy, but it is a Hall of Fame Hey, It's That Guy. Hey, it's that guy. Can you name the actor who plays William Rand? No, but I know he's a Hey, It's That Guy. No. Oh, oh what is his name? Uh, 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 uh. Oh, wait. I was trying to think. You know who I thought he was, but I think maybe he isn't? Was the dad from, um, what was that show called? Life Goes On? Life Goes On. <gasps> Was it that guy? No, it wasn't that no, guy. No, it wasn't that but it does, guy. It does look like that guy. It does look like that guy. <laughs> hey, it's not that guy. That's John Doman. He was Commissioner Rawls on The Wire. Okay. And now has a recurring role in Gotham. And he's a repeat offender <laughs> because he has had five SVU appearances, five original recipe appearances, and a law and order trial by jury experience. Shut. Ex- he's been yeah. out 11 times? Yeah. That seems like wow. excessive. Yeah, it's it's like he got his card punched at the 10th time <laughs> and got to come back for free. But they have him as William Rand, this, you know, this really mean, probably like they're trying to make him out to be the worst defense contractor ever. Just ask yourself something, counselor. Is this the battle you want? Because war is my business. And business is good. Rebecca, can you comment on his like super manly dialogue and if that's effective? Uh, no, not in any way. <laughs> Especially when you see his, by the way, I thought they were in his apartment, his like swankest hospital room that ever hospitaled with like walls of glass and like a view of Central Park. That was a hospital room? Yeah, it was a hospital room. It was ridiculous. And you know, one of the interesting <laughs> things about him was I think that they tried to make him really manly by having him be really affronted at the prospect that he was potentially raped and he like sends his wife out of the room because he doesn't want her to hear it and he wants to ask that question in private. Meanwhile, spoiler alert, he doesn't send his actual girlfriend out of the room to hear that part of like the police's theory. So I, th- I think there's supposed to be that sort of like stereotypically masculine homophobia that's supposed to make us think that he's tough. But then later we see him going to like a benefit wearing one of those weird scarves with his tuxedo. So <laughs> I don't know. I wanted to say, like, I think, you know, I was paying close attention, as I am wont to do, I was paying close attention to this this 
like male rape subplot and I think it was handled really well yeah like I think it was handled with just the appropriate amount of like I don't know you know I feel like there's like a there can be like a perceived skeeviness that people feel in towards like towards any sort of like same sex sexual situation whether it's consensual or not and I feel like they handled it really well like it was a it was a necessary plot point it, it was hand, it just was handled well I thought I know what you're saying they didn't do that thing which I think we've seen on other episodes and certainly we've seen on other shows where it's like a guy getting raped it's the worst thing that has ever happened to anybody right. in the history right. of the world like so much worse than a woman getting raped. there's something yeah. about sort of the visceral clutch that men have the idea of you know being penetrated or whatever but they didn't go there and I love that they didn't go there and they also didn't do that thing where there was like they didn't have any of like the, the police officers making like offhand comments about like there was none of that sort of demeaning sort of like thing that I think you've seen in other places the show definitely got more sensitive and they and the and this and the signal for it getting more sensitive was ice tea accepting his gay son in real life no no on the show <laughs> oh 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 sorry Finn, not actually ice tea <laughs> I was like, wait big what? drink <laughs> <laughs> Well, look, before we give SVU a Peabody, uh, <laughs> let's just point out that the assault on William Rand is a real MacGuffin here because it's just the catalyst to get us to the real story, which is the rape of Corey. Wait, you mean just enough of the baton to get us to the real story? Oh, my God, that line. <laughs> so a rape for another rape, that makes it okay to you. I gave him just enough of the baton to make him think about it every time he sits down. I was like, wow, wow. Exactly. Oh, I shouldn't joke, but you had to. I had to do it. But the whole story, I mean, this is really just sort of the catalyst to get to what the, the bigger story is, yeah. which is this gang rape and the fact that his company is working to cover it up and prevent justice from being done. Yeah, I mean, this is obviously the Blackwater story, right? This is like Law & Order's way of handling the real-life war. And Law & Order, as a franchise, handled the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan Occasionally, and in an interesting way, in, in different episodes. The one thing, though, is that the rape of the guy was the catalyst to talk about and to investigate the rape of the daughter of the mm -hmm. guy who ended up kidnapping the, the bad guy. What was interesting, well, was they never really like solved his kidnapping. I know that I know that the guy who did it confessed and like was put in jail, but you would think that he would be more upset. That they weren't doing more to solve his case. No. Well, no, no, no. <laughs> right, because he didn't want them to. They took it into their own hands. Right. So, yeah, it, well, it was a MacGuffin. It was an interesting MacGuffin, and it was an interesting turn. And I actually think the storyline with the daughter was very compelling and really well done, except for the couple of minor exceptions. It was hard to watch. I mean, I have a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, and I was just like, oh, God. I know it's, it, it was really reminiscent to me of that documentary, The Invisible War. Did you guys see that? No. no. It's on Netflix, and it deals a lot with with like rape and I think it actually deals with maybe actual soldiers and not people who are working for private contractors but it reminded me a lot of that and it's you know it's just so I mean it's just so horrifying and I do think too they took pains to like detail how brutal the rape was but they sort of sprinkled it out over like several scenes so that you could digest it you know like there was that moment when the Navy SEAL says to the officer um, or the you know detective god drink uh, <laughs> I know how you feel Mr. Like, I have a daughter too. Really? Does your daughter flinch when you try to hug her? Wake up screaming in the night? Was your daughter raped so brutally that she'll never be able to have children? 
was your daughter like raped so brutally that she can't have children? That hit me right in the gut. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Kermit. It's our very special guest star, Mr. Harry Connick Jr. Yes. In the role of a executive assistant district attorney, David Hayden, it's Neil Crooner, Harry Connick Jr. Officially, this isn't just a sex crime. It's the kidnapping of a high-profile figure. The DA has asked me to take a personal interest. There was an inside joke with one of his first lines. Anyone pick up on it? No. He said he's a second-generation district attorney. Yeah. Anybody get what that means? No. No. Harry Connick Sr. was the DA of New Orleans for about 30 years. Oh, I get it. Well, you would think if he was so practiced in the language of district attorneys, he wouldn't introduce himself as the executive assistant to the district attorney. Exactly. (laughs) I totally got that, too. I was like, wait, are you the secretary? Exactly. He's like the the, the Dwight Schrute of the uh, DA's office. I take dictation for Jack McCoy. Can we just talk about the fact that from the moment, the moment that Harry Connick Jr. walked into that squad room, Olivia Benson was basically taken off her pants, like immediately, <laughs> like the eyes. Yes. And there was this whole pretense of like, I don't work well with people I don't trust. Bullshit. You saw Harry <laughs> Connick Jr. and you forgot about Cassidy like he was yesterday's tuna sandwich. You know, you know, Patrick, I don't know about you, but I couldn't hear any of the dialogue over Olivia Benson going sploosh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, my favorite thing is that his counter argument to that was like, sometimes I yell at my kids or something. Like, I I get grumpy. Little secret, I can be a little testy when I work with new people. I can be somewhat testy around my kids. You have kids? Boy and a girl. They live with my ex-wife in Cabo Hill. You? Me. Uh, just getting over something. He's like, I get grumpy with my kids. And I was like, that, that was, was awkward. That, was, that wasn't smooth. Yeah. yeah. It's like his way of saying that he has kids was to sort of, I mean, it was throw some cold right. water on that. That first, that first date <laughs> scene where they, where they weren't really a date, they were like after core or whatever. Super awkward. And yet another man on the show, like we needed yet another man on the show reminding Olivia Benson that she doesn't have children. We did not need that. <laughs> well, okay. Look, Rebecca, now we are in season 13. So we've just crossed over to where there's no more stabler mm-hmm. in this franchise and so it's finally Mariska's show yeah. Why are the writers giving her a romantic partner now? Is it, do they feel like there has to be the the yin and the yang? There's got to be some sexual tension for her character yeah. to have purpose? Yeah, they do, and it's really disappointing to me. Like, I think that the seasons where they try to sort of cram Mariska with somebody, I like some of her longer term, more You shouldn't say cram her with somebody. I uh, think that's, that's right. right. That's okay. not an SVU thing to say. Cram her together with somebody. You know, I do think Mariska, I think, I think she's more interesting by herself. You, you, you want her to be happy. Happy, right? But like, we know Cassidy was just never going to be that guy. We knew that. Like, it was doomed from the beginning. And I guess the idea that, like, she and Harry Connick Jr. would have all this instant chemistry in one episode, it's disappointing. Because, like, the, the trope of a TV drama, even a TV drama like Law and Order that crams 75 stories into one hour of television, it's supposed to be, these things are supposed to be, like, on slow burn, right? There's supposed to be a lot of conflict, and then eventually they get together. It was, it was very weird the way they did this. I also didn't find them to have a lot of chemistry. Is that just me? Like, I, I didn't feel no, that they 
where I don't know. I was I was just going to ask you that. I actually kind of thought that they did. No. Now, th- I mean, there's no time for a slow burn because Harry's only going to be on for about four or five episodes. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I don't know. He just has this sort of twinkle in his eye. He, d- he does something for me. Oh, good for you. Hey, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> I will say though, he is a great Broadway star. I mean, he he has been on Broadway in the last couple of seasons in two shows. Um, the Pajama Game and On a Clear Day You Can See Forever and he's great I mean like he really can like command an audience and a, like really can lead a show as like a really strong leading man he, he's really really good on Broadway oh, good to know and of course you, you know he has the in front of the live audience skills as a musician a lot of screen actors and I'm thinking of like you know Birdman as like sort of the great fictional example of this a lot of you know movie stars have never seen an audience mm-hmm. and so they don't translate well and I haven't seen him as a stage actor, but you would vouch for H.C. Jr.? Yeah, oh yeah. He's great. Like, he's got a showmanship. He's got a, obviously a great voice. He's a really good actor. You know, also, sometimes when, like, big stars like that come into the Broadway community, they can kind of be aloof, but he's not. He's very accessible and he really gets engaged in the community and, you know, does a lot of fundraising stuff and there's definitely a place for him here. I think he's also very happy doing it and I think that he likes sort of having that option in his back pocket. Hey, so all we need now in this case that apparently happened overseas is a reason to prosecute someone in New York for a crime that happened in a war zone. Surprise! If only they had a way to do this. If only they had jurisdiction. If they could all, if there, if it only had been attempted before, Rebecca. <laughs> yes. Uh, Battle Tested is the fake Blackwater in this episode, which, by the way, it sounds like a fake name a writer made up as a slug, and they would replace <laughs> it later with a real-sounding name, and they just forgot to do that. May find replace later. Oh, shit, they will, they're shooting today? Oh. Battle tested sounds like, you know, the Lego set that's going to have come with like the ship <laughs> and like the gun. Um, anyway, so yes, it turns out the headquarters is in New York. So if they did, in fact, conspire to cover up poor Corey's rape, we can go after him, says Harry Connick Jr. Yeah, great jurisdiction opportunity right there. Convenient. Wait, can I ask a question? Sure. Fire away. How did they get, like, five times the legal limit of alcohol into that poor guy before he died? <laughs> That's part two, Patrick. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry, sorry. I haven't sorry. gotten to part two yet. It's a funnel, obviously. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, now let's look at the second half of this episode. Episode? Episode. Uh, too much whiskey. Um, <laughs> at the grand jury, the army doctor changes her story, and they can't get an indictment against the contractor. So back at square one, the squad identifies the four contractors and their supervisor, Joe. So we have four rapists. Who's Joe Marshall? Joe Marshall, the head of detail. He had them isolate me afterwards. Okay, so we need somebody under him. Corey... Tell me about the guards. He's the one who gave me his cell phone to call home. The thing is, he's dropped out of sight. He left the company three years ago. We better find him before they do. Confronted with the fact he had all four guys tested for VD after the attack, he says Corey's sex was consensual Ugh. because nothing turns a woman on like desert sand blowing into her crack. Oh, my God. <laughs> they find a guard named George who's trying to drink away his memories of Iraq. He claims he saw faxes sent by Rand himself orchestrating the cover-up. So we see later, at the same time, O'Keefe gets shanked in prison 
prison. Corey assaulted at work. George is found dead with a bottle of vodka. Someone has ransacked Olivia's apartment. And Mo Green gets shot through the eye while getting a massage during the Corleone baptism. No, that did not happen. <laughs> Everything except the Mo Green thing happened. <laughs> now, by putting additional pressure on Rand and his side piece lawyer, the detectives intercept coded messages they play for Joe. They figure out that Rand has the missing rape kit and he's using it to blackmail the contractors. But Joe has the faxes incriminating Rand. Just before he can make a Lex Luthor-like getaway in a helicopter, the SVU team picks up Rand and books him. Yeah. So this is a giant intelligence gathering modern mercenary corporation. And when the CEO decides he's going to order an elaborate cover up, he sends the instructions by fax. <laughs> yeah, but isn't that sort of safe though? Aren't there faxes sort of like Obviously not. <laughs> well, here's, a, gonna... here's a paper trail I'm creating out of nothing. <laughs> he had to probably go find a cover sheet, right? It was like, you know, here's the date. Page one of three. Yeah, re- uh, regarding, <laughs> topic regarding cover-up. CC. CC, yes. <laughs> fax? Return fax number, two fax number. And he waited there for the confirmation page. And like, <laughs> Sorry, the line was busy. All right, he's still standing there. Uh. Yeah. Oh my God, get me a water. It's funny that for you, that was the detail that stuck out. Not the detail that instead of taking the rape kit to the mountain where you would store it forever, throw it in the trash. Throw it right. away. No, he was smart enough to know he needed leverage over the guys who might testify. But you can just say you had it. You don't actually have to have it. You don't actually have to have it? Because oh, okay. if you go nuclear with it, then it's all over anyway. Exactly. The whole idea that they would keep all the evidence of their cover-up, to me, is much more egregious than sending a fax. I mean, that was that, it was a problem. <laughs> it was. It was it was a writing problem in this, in this uh, particular episode. I also do, like, I also wonder, I thought about this in the night of as well. I always wonder, like, how is there just a guy in jail who's willing to kill another guy? Like, then they could just get to him at any time. You know what I mean? <laughs> There's always somebody, exactly always someone available, totally. and the guy always already has the shiv made. Exactly. Well, I think they have like a bulletin board where they just put a, a index card and a thumbtack, <laughs> and they go through the cafeteria. It's like the odd jobs. They're like, oh, rip off that little piece of paper at the yeah, bottom. It's just, yeah, it's just... <laughs> that's how they get that. Yeah, but then they also always know where the person's going to be, where they're going to walk. Right, and they're exactly. always walking the opposite way without supervision. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but, but here's great. At the same time, they're killing everybody, that same exact moment, but they uh, they just mess up the furniture in Olivia's apartment. Like, they're going to say, well, she's not here, so let's just irritate her. Did you see that she had her gun in her pocket when she walked in, like, when she opened the door and saw that her, like, it wasn't in a holster. It was literally in her pocket. She didn't want to have visible holster line. <laughs> exactly. It's Olivia Benson. You know, the outerwear just looks better. Is that a gun in your pocket, or are you just expecting someone to mess up your furniture? (laughs) You know, think of the number of times that Olivia's sanctuary of an apartment has been violated by intruders who have it out to get her. You would think at some point, at some point, she'd move into a doorman building, right? At some point. A doorman building, yes. (laughs) It's New York. That's expensive, you guys. Not on a cop salary. 
Sorry. <laughs> well, she they talk to enough doormen, That's right? True. You know that they should know right. like what neighborhood <laughs> exactly. is good. Exactly. You know, it's like, oh no, it's, we're too gentrified up in this neighborhood. I got to go downtown now. <laughs> right. Alphabet City, baby. That's fancy now. That's where all the kids are hanging out. <laughs> What's a good place to be, Olivia Benson, and live in the city now? Oh God, my neighborhood. I live in Harlem, and so Harlem is like in. It's like that perfect. Like, there's tons of families on my block, and there's tons of kids, and but like it's still not that expensive, and it's not like fancy. This it's a, this is a good neighborhood. Move here, Olivia. How many murders and rapes have you seen on the Law and Order franchises that took place within like three blocks of your house? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, that's exactly right. Whenever like they flash the address on this on the screen, I'm always like, well, it's my neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's what was happening on September 17th. <laughs> Let's talk about story writing for just a sec. When it comes to creating tension, mm-hmm. I think you you have to feel like the bad guys can get away with it. Right. Right. It, whether it's uh, the one suspect who might be able to get an acquittal, or in this case, you've got a whole company mm-hmm. that has all this power. I think that we really, like for once, we really feel like they can get away with it. Yeah, and the other problem is with the writing is that we never really meet the rapists. Mm -hmm. Like we never get our moment of getting to see those guys get what they have coming to them for what they did. The enemy becomes Rand and his company, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, good point. And they covered it up. You know, they knew they didn't have jurisdiction, so they hire these as cowboys, as Amaro's gorgeous wife uh, calls them, (laughs) who can do what they want. We never actually see this poor girl get to really face her accusers and have you know real justice of the actual guys who did this to her. We never see them. We don't have that, 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 that glory moment of Olivia Benson arresting those dudes. Now there's an interesting uh, subplot here between Amaro and his wife Ugh. and she is a service woman and she's you know back on, on leave for a short time. Beautiful actress. <laughs> and yes. uh, you know that adds to the tension. Now Patrick, yes. uh, you have a little story story about this actress. You're friends with her. She's my friend. Yeah, her name is Laura Benanti. And it's so funny because, you know, Laura, she she's a goddess in New York City, in, in Broadway. She's, you know, a five-time Tony-nominated actress. She won once. She's, you know, she just this past season, like, led She Loves Me, uh, was nominated for another Tony Award for it. And she is incredible. She's just such an, she's such a funny, follow her on Twitter, at Laura Benanti. She is the funniest person in the world. She's just, like, a great person. I literally have interviewed her something like seven times now between the three <laughs> podcasts that I do. Another funny thing is that her husband's name is also Patrick. So every now and then I'll get a text from her that's like, babe, can you pick up the groceries? Like, don't forget the dry cleaning. <laughs> and I'm like, um, but she's amazing. And it's funny to see her on like TV because, you know, she's she's done a ton of work on TV and a little bit in film as well. But, you know, you know what she's like really well known for now? She's the one that does Melania Trump on Colbert. Yes. Now, that's the thing I was going to ask you about is when you've seen her perform on stage. But when you see her in a character mm-hmm. on television, and it's, it's sort of a not as broad. Trapped there with a morrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ugh. Well, I mean, the way you have to play, you can't, you know, <laughs> When you're doing a, a scene in TV, you can't like be trying to project to the back row. Mm-hmm. That doesn't play well. Patrick, when you see her, somebody that you know so well, is she just sort of gone? She she's sort of like is she being underused? No, no, no. <laughs> like, is she just like so into the character that you don't recognize her anymore? Well, I will say when I first saw her, I was like, oh, is that Laura? I, I will say the first moment you see her, her daughter opens the door to the apartment and she sees her daughter and her daughter sees her and it's a surprise and the daughter comes running to her and then she picks up the daughter. Hi, hi, hi. 
Oh, I miss you so much. And like she held her and she closed her eyes and I almost started to cry. I was like, I, she's so believable in that moment of like, you know, missing her kid and having been gone and only going to be home for a short time. Like, I think that she's just, she's so great. She's one of those actors who can really do both, like really be big on stage and small in front of a camera. So it's always a pleasure to see her on a TV show. I, I mentioned The Good Wife before. She she has a recurring character on The Good Wife, which she did before it ended, where she was like some murderer's knowing wife. And she's hilarious. And she's like, you know, like gorgeous and vampy and doesn't care that he's murdering people. So she's just, she's great. She's a hoot. And here she is in SVU, trapped, married to the worst husband <laughs> in the world. Amaro's relationship with his wife makes me crazy on SVU. It's one of the reasons why he's such an unlikable character because here he is, he's this guy. He was a veteran, right? He was in Iraq. So ostensibly at some point he was away, okay? So then he comes back. He's working as a cop in New York, living full-time with their daughter, and she it's her turn. She goes away, right? Right. The insecurity of this douchebag around every single conversation and every single thing that his wife does, it infuses every moment of their screen time together. Even when they're like happy, this is like the happy days between Amaro and his wife, Uh Maria. And still he's like, can you trust him? Who is your contact? How do you know that guy? He cannot (laughs) stop interrogating her. And here she's just like, what are you talking about? Let's just have sex. What are you talking about? Remind for Patrick and our audience how Amaro's uh, marriage to Maria ends. Well, she leaves his ass because he accuses her of having an affair when really she's getting therapy because she has freaking PTSD. Because, by the way, she was just in a wreck. Oh, my God. (laughs) I mean, the whole relationship with her, it it really is the reason why I think we as an audience... I mean, of course, Amara was also sort of the sub-in for Stabler, which was difficult for a lot of people to accept because Stabler was like, you know, he was the bookend with, right. with Olivia. Right. But they, they subbed in this guy who didn't have enough security to even like have one conversation with his wife without giving her shit about some guy she used to know five years ago. It's infuriating to me. Wait, Rebecca, can I ask you about that? Is the show aware of it? Do you think, like, is he written to be, like, is the show aware that he's bad on that front? Or is his character just written like that and there's no thought about it. I think that they plotted out like his marital demise as a device. I, I I suspect the plan may have been when he first came on to pair he and Olivia up eventually because, you know, she never had her day in the sun with Elliot Stabler because they always made it not work out for them. I mean, I don't know. I don't I've never been in the writer's room, obviously, but I, I wonder if maybe they brought him on planning to eventually have the marriage fall apart so that they could pair him up with somebody else in the squad, maybe Olivia. So that those seeds were being planted But I think that they really underestimate for a woman, especially the target demographic of the show, like a woman in her 40s, maybe, who's like really self-assured. And, you know, if you're me and you're in a great relationship, that is the the biggest turnoff you can possibly see is a guy Uh saying to his wife at every turn, how do you know that guy? Can you trust that guy? What are you doing with that guy? (laughs) It is it's horrible. It just makes me hate every moment of him being on the screen. Well, let's let's change it up talk about the other quasi-romantic couple in this episode, which is you have Olivia with David, and they're going to start Just a relationship. Harry Connick Jr. Harry Connick Jr. <laughs> <laughs> and we did talk about that scene where, at the very end, as they're hailing a cab, she confesses to him, she says, I... And just for the record, I haven't worked that well with anyone in a very long time. Well, that makes two of us. Nightcap? 
I I haven't worked that well with anyone in a long time. She's talking about Elliot. Duh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and also talking about Amaro. Yeah. She's dissing Amaro, looking back at, but she's also talking about like the string of, you know, DAs and stuff that they've been working with and paired with that have had to No, I, do, I think, I don't think who that's, she's really talking about. Yeah, she's throwing about. shade at Amaro for sure. Yeah. She's talking about, yeah, she's talking, she hasn't been working well with Amaro. And we also read into it that, I worked well with Stabler, and that's who I really want. I read into it that she wanted to take off her pants immediately. <laughs> that's what I read into it. <laughs> because the two of them started sucking each other's faces. Like, they were going for it. They were going for it in a big way. And she talked about it as if this had been this long slog where they didn't get along, and then they did. This was like the second time they'd been out together. And she was like, she was going to take him home, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I just wanted to also say that, like, to, for her to be like, I haven't worked that well. Like, you guys, everybody died. You know what I mean? Like, you got the bad guy, but, like, everybody died. It wasn't, it didn't go great, guys. <laughs> Your witness dies. Like, all you had to do was keep the booze out of that guy's room. Like, he, no, no, you guys didn't work great. Let's talk, can we, can we talk about that? The- Why would she want to take him home when her apartment looks like that? <laughs> when she doesn't even have a doorman, for God's sake. Yeah. Oh, one other thing about this episode that we need to talk about was all of the really unnecessary dumb dialogue after everything happened. So poor George dies of alcohol poisoning and then Finn's like, we just made George collateral damage. <laughs> yeah, no shit, you did. And then when they go when uh, when they go to talk to the, um, the uh, federal prosecutor who could go after battle tested but didn't and she's just like, these guys are bad guys, Harry Connick Jr. I'm just I'm telling you that as a friend. And then oh, they yeah, leave and he goes... <laughs> Got a lot of juice in Washington, Rebecca. (laughs) A lot of juice. They leave and he goes. Well, that was a profile in courage. Yeah, that was a real profile in courage. And then Olivia says, You can tell they've got their marching orders. Because seriously, they, it was like the writers had two lines and they were like, okay, you guys, you say this and then you say this and we'll just leave one of them in. And they were like, the editors were like, fuck it, we need the extra three seconds, so let's just put both of those let's lines put both in. of them in. <laughs> you guys, we're still trying to figure out what we're going to call Battle Tested. I don't have time for this right now. <laughs> <laughs> let's take a look at the real life story that inspired this episode. It's time for Ripped from the Headlines. Sexy theme song. You think you know who did it. You think you know but you don't know who did it. You don't know who did it. Rip from the headlines. This episode is inspired by the story of Jamie Lee Jones. The 19-year-old worked as a military contractor in Baghdad. She claimed to have been drugged and gang raped by several firefighters working for KBR, a subsidiary of Halliburton. Jones said after arriving at Camp Hope in July 2005, someone slipped a drug in her drink. She claimed several men raped and beat her while she was unconscious. When she reported the assault to officials, Jones said she was locked up for two days. Jones filed criminal charges against KBR and the men. The company argued the sex had been consensual, and Jones made up the story to get sent home from Iraq. No drugs were detected in her blood, but her rape kit had been tampered with. Still, a federal grand jury failed to indict. Jones sued KBR and one of the firefighters in civil court. Not only did she lose her case, she was ordered to pay $145,000 for the defendant's legal fees. Jones told her story to Congress. Afterward, several women came forward to say they too were sexually harassed or assaulted by military contractors. 
Well, and I'm going to say the details of the assault of Casey and of Jamie Lee Jones, pretty much identical. I just want to say... That story fucking sucks. That's terrible. Yeah. That's terrible. Yeah. I feel awful. Had you hadn't heard that story before? No. It's bad. It's really bad. I had heard it. My sister's in the military, and she, she's done two tours in Afghanistan, and I think three tours in Iraq, and she's been in Africa for years, and she's back. Now, you know, it's scary. It's it's really scary, and it's very real. This is, this is not an unfamiliar storyline for SVU. They've tackled this in other issues. There was, like, a, an episode that was loosely based on Tailhook, you know, They've had sort of this military stuff with sexual assault here before. The contractor aspect of it is obviously really troublesome in the real world. These like sort of you don't have jurisdiction because, you know, the government has signed an agreement with the you know, the government over there that they don't fall under their jurisdiction. And then, of course, they're not in the military. So don't fall under the military justice jurisdiction and that there's no recourse and that anybody would think that anyone would make up that story <laughs> like in any way. It's insane. It's insane. Well, there were a lot of little details uh, in SVU that came, uh, you know, also from the story, you know, the multiple guys attacking her, being held for two days. And there was the one guy who uh, gave her the telephone uh, to call her dad. Was her dad a special forces pirate hunter? No, dad was not a special, but he was stateside and tried to, to get something done. The assault on Jamie Lee Jones was so bad that they burst one of her breast Oh, Jesus Christ. That's terrible. But But that was consensual for sure. Yeah. But she did not get justice in real life. Patrick, is Law & Order trying to right the wrongs of true life in this episode? You know, I don't know that anybody would watch an uh, an episode where it ended with the way that it ended in real life. I mean, I'm assuming that they have to have some sort of resolution that makes you not just like get off your couch and jump out the window, you know, like. So, yeah, I guess I guess that that's what they are trying to do. But it's also like maybe does a disservice because we don't it doesn't always end like that and women are treated like this and these things do happen so you know it's I don't know I'm not sure what the right answer is well Rebecca sometimes Dick Wolf does try to do that he he takes the story and gives the ending that there should be yeah but I think the problem here is when Law and Order throws up that card and says like this isn't about a real thing which we all know means it's actually about totally about a real thing yeah (laughs) yeah but I think that for an audience that isn't familiar with the real story I sort of side with Patrick here that maybe it does the real life victim and the real life people who are also victims who didn't get justice a little bit of a disservice when it is so neat. You know what I mean? It's not perfect, obviously, because poor Corey's dad is in jail for uh, right. you know batoning that executive um, and kidnapping him. So weird. <laughs> so weird. Uh, it, didn't, it wasn't perfect, but at the end she calls and she's like, we got him, daddy. We got all of them. How did he? He's still in prison. How did he make the outgoing call to Amaro? Did he like have to crawl all the way to the payphone? <laughs> Yeah, with his with his knife wound. <laughs> yeah. Can we also talk about just like how enraging it is it was to like listen, even though you knew it was bogus, like to listen to them talking about her. It's like she has mental issues and she was loose and and like she was just turned on by being in a war zone. It's hard. It's that that stuff is just. I, and I know it's supposed to be enraging. I know they're supposed to be the bad guy, but it's hard to like listen to that stuff because people say that stuff. People think that stuff. No, totally, absolutely, it is enraging. I think we're supposed to be enraged, and I think that. But, um, it's supposed to sort of show us like the worst of the worst. I mean, that's what SVU is about, right? Making us feel good about the worst of the worst. Yeah, we're saying, well, 
<laughs> it's a feel-good, worst-of-the-worst story. I think you're just supposed to be happy the guy didn't get away on his helicopter and, like, fly away off uh, out of Gotham City. <laughs> yeah. And say, ha, 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 you'll never get me, Batman. Yeah, but we know in real life he probably went to prison and faked his own death and got away just like Ken Lay did, right? <laughs> he could do that. <laughs> if only he could just get rid of the faxes that say that that was his plan all along. Exactly. <laughs> well, that is going to do it for us. We want to thank our guest, Patrick Hines. Patrick, where can our listeners keep up with you? You can find me on Twitter at Patrick Hines. Uh, you can find my uh, Theater People podcast. We're theaterpeople.com, and that's theater with an E-R-P-P-L. Uh, and you can link to everything from there. Thank you for spelling it the right yeah. way, Patrick. I, I don't really know. I thought it would be more hoity-toity. <laughs> no, it's that was like the URL that was available, and I spent the last three years of my life saying that's with an E-R-P-P-L.com. That's because that's how theater is spelled, Patrick. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, my goodness. I couldn't agree with you more. All of everybody wants to spell it the other way, and it just enrages me. It's it, The show isn't better because you're spelling it with an R-E. <laughs> <laughs> so, Rebecca, how can listeners follow you? They can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Reb Lavoy. And if I had a theater, it would totally be spelled with an E-R. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll make sure that you get one. You can also track me on Twitter at Kevin P. Flynn. You can tweet to us at Law & Order Pod. Our newsreader was Philip Ockelford. Our theme music was composed and performed by Uncanny Valleys. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave a review on iTunes. It helps others discover this program just like you did. All clips in this podcast were used in compliance with U.S. Copyrights Act fair use exemption for criticism and commentary. Special thanks to the elite squad of the Law & Order Wiki community for preserving the evidence. If you want to know what episodes we're talking about in our upcoming shows, go to lawandorderpodcast.com. These are their stories, which is recorded in Square Egg Studio and is a production of Partners in Crime Media. Partners in Crime Media. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and... Producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.